So hello everybody, this is TJ Sokolik running the channel Visionary Objeda, a sister channel to the ever-excellent Crank Playthings run out of Christchurch, New Zealand. They are part of the 8K Collective. You can check out Crank Playthings and many other excellent channels over at 8k.nz. And today I have with me a very, very special guest coming to us from the United States of America. He's coming from us out of Illinois, although I'm sure he hears that joke every fucking day of his life. Uh, we have Mr. Garmer, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which I hope I am, unless it's Garmister. No, you got it right. Garmer, all right, perfect. I think first one to get it, first try. <laughs> the first one, how does that work? Does people actually say Garmister? No, uh, they usually pronounce the A part wrong, like a long A. I like a Garmer? No, it's more like a Garmar. Oh, Garmar. Do you have a lot of friends who call you Gamer? Like Gamar or something? I've gotten that a couple times. I got that a couple times when I first started it about a year and a half ago. Try to get a really lame insult in there? Yeah, I kind of expected that one. And it was just like, okay, like you were waiting for that one basically. <laughs> I my myself I honestly get the uh I n I never thought I would. I never thought anyone would go that cheap with it, but I've gotten T gay a lot and I'm like, okay. Ni nicely done, buddy. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> you know, it's it works, I guess, if you if you want to take that route. So, uh do you would you prefer for me to refer to you as Garmer or do you want to go with the government name for the the duration of the conversation? Um, I don't know. It's not really a stage name. It, my name's Luke, if that helps. That's just what this project is. Yeah, it's on your uh it's on your your Skype name, so I knew what it was, but I didn't know if you uh you were under that cloak of anonymity that some people uh really cling to. No, I mean if you go to my bandcamp page it says what my first name is. It doesn't have my last name on there or anything. But I mean, all right. Well, if there if there's anyone out there who's looking for you, we'll we'll at least just I'll I'll keep it to Garmer, and they'll they'll know it's Luke. But if someone's looking for you, we'll uh, we'll make it a little bit harder at least. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, all right. So, why don't you give me just a little bit of a rundown of how things got started and um, sort of where where Garmer really began where everything started coming together into uh into an oral format well i don't know the real first origin was a couple years ago i did vocals in this death metal band with a friend of mine who is now really big into noise music and he showed me this album well after the band broke up probably three years ago maybe and it was called Full of Hell Plus Mersbau. And it's a really good album. Oh, the classic. Oh, the classic uh, comp album. Yeah. So great. I mean, it was not my first experience hearing Full of Hell, but it was the first time I heard Mersbau and had really heard, like, crazy harsh noise. And that got me thinking, hmm, you know what? I have like 15 guitar pedals and a mixer that I can plug together and make sound really, really, really gross. 
let's see how far I can get with that. And uh, one year... That's that's the most perfect, like, apt description. The most perfect apt description of just... I've got all this stuff, and I need to make a sound that's just absolutely gross. Oh, yeah. And it turned into a bit of an obsession. One year later, I've now incorporated four or five additional guitar pedals and three analog synthesizers and a MIDI controller to my rig. It's gotten less gross over time. I've gotten a little more ambient, but the rig looks gross with all the wiring I have to use for it now. <laughs> oh, I I feel you on that one. I've uh I've got right I'm literally right now sitting next to my uh my literally I call it my floor setup, but it it's literally on my floor and I'm I'm sure if anyone else saw this it just it looks like a mess. So, I understand you on that one. Yeah, so you've said that you you started out with uh just the sort of all the guitar pedals and you really wanted to make some some gross sounds coming out with that. But I also noticed too that there's obviously a lot more influence from the whole uh the whole uh grind and power violence thing uh a lot with the aesthetic um especially. So have you always tried to keep that in or did you really want to take a different approach? when you started working a bit more aesthetically or did that just sort of become a natural progression from that sort of background for you? Well, originally the project was conceived as like a noise grind project. And I've got a couple releases that have a very grindy feel while still being pretty noisy. So I think it's always been there and just naturally felt like a part of the project. I, I definitely get that feeling from the Baldur's Drama release when I listen to that one because it's very, very grindy and very, <clears throat> whoa, sorry, very grindy and very, um, very power violency, but with a really, just a thick blanket of noise over top of it. And it's just, it just sounds ripping and just insane. I, I really, really liked that release. Well, you'll probably be excited. I've almost got the rest of it ready to go out. The rest of it's not quite as noisy as what's out there, but I've been kind of bogged down with my guitar playing and recording on that end, working with uh, a grind project that I'm playing guitar in as well. Oh, so we've got more stuff to look forward to on the horizon for Garmer as well. Uh, Yeah, for Garmer right now, I'm working on a follow-up to my last full-length album, my last full-length album was called Sele. It came out in May. Sick fucking vibe! And it was kind of a concept album, sort of. I don't know, I'm a huge nerd, and it's based on my favorite anime. <laughs> and uh, I'm working on a sequel to it that syncs up to the movie End of Evangelion. See, and I actually meant to ask about that, too, because... Obviously, with with like we mentioned earlier, with such a a strong power violence influence as well. Um, even just looking through the album art and uh, some of the titles for uh, the tracks that you have, and some of the titles for the albums that you have as well, that there's a lot of a lot of reference to other media as well. I mean, there's you know lots of movie references and movie quotes kind of tossed in there. And I know that sort of does go hand in hand uh, with power violence a lot of the time. I mean, 
you know, I don't think Spaz had more than two tracks on an album that weren't separated by at least one at least one one clip from a movie or so. So I always I actually did want to ask if that was more of an aesthetic choice, but clearly it's uh, it's really playing at your heartstrings. A little bit, a little bit. I uh, really enjoy that movie more than I should probably, but I don't know. Arguably one of the better animated films to come out of Japan in the last couple decades. Well, and I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with. Not even nothing wrong. It's pretty much what you would expect if there's something, you know, even in a separate type of media that you do feel super, super connected to and really want to take your own or put your own take on on how you experience it. Then I think that almost speaks greater volumes in the influence that you can draw from the world around you. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's not just that being the only media that's influenced me a lot of aesthetic aesthetically anyway a lot of my influences are like modern photography and old school oil painting like pre-18th century oil painting and I like to combine a lot of that with modern digital art aesthetic for more of a jarring contrast it plays into a lot of the lyrical themes on my albums too more of like uh history repeats itself kind of thing and I use like a lot of my songs are about things that have already happened but I frame them as a metaphor for things that are happening now that's like the entirety of what my Paradise Lost album is is either historical or religious quotes phrases and references framed for modern problems See, and it's to me, it's re- it's refreshing in a big way to sort of see that because I know I've you know I've stumbled across you know quite a few releases in in multiple genres, and I feel like a lot of the a lot of the aesthetics that you know might be somewhat similar to yours are they're used I would like to say a little bit cheaply and. With with you, that's not the so- sense that I got at all because you know, like you just said, there the whole history repeating itself sort of thing. It really does sort of give you a direction to move in, and almost does give you sort of, um, you know, almost uh, an infinite source of lyric material, whatever age you want to pull from, because you can still sort of tie that theme in almost through whichever history really piques your interest or whatever seems to be recurring now. Absolutely, and that's how I've always kind of thought to write my lyrics in all the bands I've been in. I don't know. I've always been in, like, really heavy bands, and writing about anything else would feel cheesy doing really heavy vocals, I felt like. Yeah, and I I totally understand that. I can, I can identify with that, you know, to a certain extent, too. I know a lot of... Um, a lot of the lyrics that I used to use in in any other sort of my projects or whatever, they they sort of came from a very they they were more just personal, but with such a harsh music and aesthetic behind me, it was really easy easy to use it as sort of a a literal lash out, um, literally just a, a giving me a vessel to finally actually enact all the feelings of 
whatever happened to be going on. But, you know, even at, even at that rate, I feel like eventually that sort of just becomes a, uh, a tired loop in of itself. But I feel like the way that you've taken this, this lyrical approach and this aesthetic approach is a, a really refreshing way of sort of reframing that cycle. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going for for the most part. Although I, I did kind of stray from that on my live albums. Most of my live albums are just photos from shows that I do, that I combine with just the modern digital art aesthetic. I don't know. Most of those have no way for me to get a real historical context, which is unfortunate, but I don't know. Well, I mean, even too keeping, keeping with the whole history repeating itself. You know, yeah, you've you've gone back and you've sort of pulled from deep historical and religious themes. But if history is going to repeat itself, you can't stick yourself in the past. You gotta, you can write your own history. What you do now will become history. That is true, and there is a good theme of repetition in these live albums, in terms of both aesthetic and a little bit in terms of content not that i'm playing the same set over and over but these live albums is where my more recent material has hit its more ambient stride is do you think that there might be um because as you said it's sort of that's sort of confined to these live recordings and these live albums so is is there a facet of actually performing live that makes you produce a different sound or create your sound um, on the fly in an almost improv way? Does it does the act of performing live influence that to a greater degree as opposed to being able to pre-plan and, uh, you know, post-edit things? It's a little bit of both. Um, varying from release to release in terms of my studio recordings... Some of my material has varied from incredibly structured to fully improvised. Whereas my live performances have always been sort of structured. Like I have maybe a sample that I'm going to manipulate on my looper. Or maybe I have a drum beat playing on a backing track. And maybe I have lyrics that I'm going to use, but other than that, it's pretty free-flowing. Do you, do you think that... It, it's, it's odd that you say that just because, for me, I think it feels almost a little bit switched in, uh, you know, in recordings uh, would be the most most prominent use of any sort of pre-planning or pre-writing um, but especially when it comes to some other recordings as well. But when it comes to live, um, I almost I you know the other week I did my first show I think ever that I did any sort of pre-planning whatsoever, and to me it felt a little, I don't know, it felt a little bit different. It felt almost a little contrived because trying to stick to that that structure in what you're doing to me felt like I was losing a little bit of something. So why to you, is there 
almost a sort of comfort in having that pre-plan when you perform live or is it more just you know exactly the message you want to get across and the sound you want to get across in a live setting um i don't know my pre-planning is mostly limited to putting some sort of sample on a looper and deciding whether or not i'm gonna use prepared lyrics or improvised lyrics and if I'm going to do prepared lyrics, which song from which album am I going to do? But even then, on uh, Drones from the Island Volume 1, I did a medley of four songs from Sele a couple of weeks before the album came out. And it ultimately doesn't really sound like them, except for having a couple samples from the studio version. And having the same lyrics. But ultimately it still was a different song. So being able to take something that you've made. Regardless of what it was. And recontextualizing it. Sort of giving yourself that infinite ammo. To work with. Yeah. I mean unfortunately I can't control electricity. So the closest I can do is approximate a studio recording live because 90% of what I do is just twist knobs. It's it's funny when when we break it down into basically to basically that as, you know, noise musicians and just yeah, well I stand there and then I turn this thing but then this other thing has to get turned this other way and it it almost in that in that context it makes it sound pretty ridiculous and i kind of like that yeah it's great i mean it's great like the i think the best part of noise though is when you really get hands on with it and either crack open one of your guitar pedals and circuit bend it or build a new one entirely like uh, in december Last year, I built my first synthesizer, and it's been a mainstay in my live performances and my studio albums ever since. What was uh, what was the synth, and what, or I guess how did you how did you come to build that? I kind of I might have to elaborate a little bit here. I have a friend. He's uh, he he works with me in another duo uh, that I perform with, but he's an absolute gearhead and basically basically i promised him that the only way he would listen to all the episodes for me and uh tell me what he thought about all the episodes is if i asked and got some uh some breakdowns on gear because he's a huge gearhead so uh give me a little bit of uh details and uh and a look into that synth oh awesome uh it's kind of I don't want to say it's my own design because it's not. It's my take on an existing design. I basically built a synth that was designed by the company Synthrotech from Portland, Oregon. And uh, I circuit bent it. It's actually two synthesizers smashed together with a lo-fi delay and reverb pedal before the output. And I circuit bent both of the synthesizers and the delay pedal. And uh, some of it doesn't work 100%. Like the control voltage inputs no longer work. But 
instead of having six oscillators, I now have two oscillators and four fine tuners for the two oscillators. And instead of a delay pedal, I have like a ring mod slash bit crusher. And uh, it works really well and got a lot of heavy use on my last two full-length albums, Apostasia and Sele. Particularly on Sele, there's, I think, a series of three or four tracks straight that's pretty much just that plugged into a bunch of reverb and delay pedals. Okay, honestly, just just hearing about the design of that um, that synth is ma- half making my mouth water and half making me just red in the face of just pure anger. That thing sounds fucking gorgeous. It looks really gross too. I uh, it's just a silver Hammond fifteen ninety DD box with like eleven knobs and like five switches on it, and then I took it over to my mom's house. And got her little old from the 90s label maker with the little plastic labels that are stamped and labeled it with all those. Oh, yeah. It was perfect. Well, I, I know I know my friend Justin's going to be beyond stoked to hear about that because he recently just started doing a whole bunch of circuit bending stuff himself. So he's, he's going to love to hear about that. But... Uh, just because I I know that rigs and uh, and gear lineups they change a lot and they vary, so I'm just gonna go with the question. So, what what was the the rig that you last used live, or the the setup that you used for live at the Hive Collective, the last uh, live album to come out? Um, let's see. Live, I most recently used. Well, I think I used pretty much the same setup every time I play live. I have a Behringer mixer that everything's plugged into. And then uh, I control the volume with the control room output. That's my main output. And then instead of using the main output for that, I have that going into a feedback loop into two of the channel strips. Um, and then the rest of it is a microphone going into an effects loop with a Moore lo-fi machine bit crusher and sample reducer, a Digitech the weapon multi-effects pedal that I bought when I was like 14, but the pitch shifter sounds really gross on my vocals, and a, uh... Oh, the pitch shifter has a blend. It's like a shitty digital-sounding pog. I love it. And uh, then after that, the vocals and the FX loop go into um, a Marshall Echo Head rever- or no delay. And I like to, for live vocals, put that on a reverse delay or a ping-pong delay in stereo. And then I will usually, I don't want to complicate my rig with a MIDI controller live. That's more for studio use. So I'll record something on my laptop with the MIDI controller and export it as a loop and put it onto a ditto looper from uh, TC Electronic. 
I use the X2 so that I can slow it down to half speed and half pitch and reverse it. And then I'll put that through a uh, Marshall Regenerator, either on the Vintage Chorus setting or the, the Step Phaser. The Step Phaser sounds really cool on a slow reverse keyboard loop like a, an electric piano. And then I put that all into my personal favorite pedal on my board, my EQD Avalanche Run. Which is the single best, like, yeah, best reverb delay pedal I've ever used. And it can just make gross sounds on its own with no input. Like, uh, my noise grind project that I have with my roommate. Uh, we just recorded a song... And all the noise is my Avalanche run with no input, plugged into a Tube Screamer and an MXR Distortion 2. And I just put it on the reverse delay function and crank the repeats up. And if you just twist the time knob, it just makes the grossest sounds. It sounds like a 64K modem. Oh yeah, that's going to sound like trying to connect to the internet in 92. That sounds, that's going to sound gross. It's amazing. And then um, I'll run a signal chain for the analog synthesizer based on Synthrotex Nandemonium that I was talking about earlier with uh, fuck, what do I use with that? <laughs> a uh, Moore Shimverb Pro pitch shifter and reverb. And, uh, yeah, I, I've been rearranging my board because I'm playing a Doom concert set. I don't know. I'm breaking out my guitar for a live set in a couple weeks, which is weird, but I think it'll be fun. So my board's all messed up right now. Um, I think that all I run that into is the Moore. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But I think that I just run that into the Shimverb Pro, just the pitch-shifted reverb. And then my other analog synthesizer that I usually use live is a Michael Rucci Maximal Drone, which uses the same CMOS chip as the Nandemonium, but it's got the full six oscillators and the low-pass filter. And I run that into uh, the Tube Screamer and the Classic Distortion, and it just makes this really gross, like, I don't know, like a grinding noise. It's really prevalent on um, Ritual Live at the Redstone Room. Sorry, sorry. I I just want to just want to take a sec here to say just two quick things. Just just two quick things that I just just want to mention while I have a sec here. Number one, uh, this call, and I'm I'm sorry if this is sort of creating any sort of awkward pauses. I'll see what I can do about editing them out, um, all after the fact. But we're running on about a three to four second delay while we're speaking. So it's getting a little bit difficult, so I apologize to you and to anybody listening. 
And also to anybody else who is listening, I I strongly urge you to listen to the entire episode and please send me a total count of the amount of times that Garmer has said the word gross to describe something in a positive way because it is just excellent. That's what it's all about. It's about making the grossest sounds sound good. I'm pretty sure that on uh, my next... Absolutely. I'm pretty sure that on my next full-length album, I'm going to literally just have a sample of a chair creaking, played at half speed on my looper, and run into like a full a full wet reverb for it's I think it's just gonna sound super cave like and dark and creepy, but not necessarily gross. It's just I wanna make it sound unsettling. And I don't want to use any instruments to do it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's that's absolutely something that's uh that's sort of in the realm of what we do and it's something that the, you you absolutely do have the ability to do with every with everything that you have set up and I think it's definitely a, a really good direction to go in um with that cuz I've I've also noted I don't remember I know I listened to quite a few of your uh of your recorded albums unfortunately I didn't get to any of the uh, the live ones quite yet, but from what I've, from one of the things that I've picked up with, sort of relating to that with uh, your recorded albums is, I've 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 noted pretty heavily that there's an overall like really, really expansive sound in the way that you're recording. I mean, none of it to me it doesn't sound like your your layers sort of get lost in each other. It's still very very chaotic, but in this sort of way where the the edges of the saw blade you might even say sort of they don't just sit side by side they they just touch the tips of each other you can distinguish and play around within your own head uh the the chaos of of the overall and it doesn't feel like the signal is uh is limited at all so it feels like you're able that you have a very a very direct channel into sort of that separating an expansive sound in a in a more direct fashion i honestly think a lot of that comes from uh the fact that i try to think of when i mix and master one of my noise recordings i try to think of it like i would if i was doing any other band that was using guitar bass and drums you have to think of individual parts of your recording as individual instruments that each deserve their own section of the sonic range. And if you don't, your track's going to sound overly chaotic and incomprehensible. Another big thing is a lot of people don't consider stereo fields to be important. Which which definitely has its place, but that's not that's never the impression I've gotten from you. Yeah. I always try to make my recordings, I don't know, discernible. I don't want them to sound overly complex to the point where you can't tell what's going on when you hear it, even if it is noise, you know? The closest I ever got to that was uh, the track for the Walls Against Trump comp that I did. 
what happened to the good old days when America and Russia teamed up to kill Nazis instead of elect them. That one's super chaotic and probably incomprehensible, but that's like the closest I ever got to that sound. Well, and even even with a title like that, with the title of the comp, Walls Against Trump, you really have to work towards that literal wall noise type of sound as opposed to this very different and very, to me, refreshing sort of layered and discernible chaos that you've sort of branded under the Garmer name. Absolutely, and that was completely my thought going into it, was that I had to make the most layered heavy wall of noise I possibly could with my rig, even if it meant making a track that I couldn't possibly replicate live because it had eight or nine overdubs of noise rig. I can't remember exactly how many there were, but by far more than any other track I've ever done. And it, the other thing that I kind of found interesting, uh, now that I kind of know that you really do have an approach uh, behind having your layers become discernible was the Mendelbrot album that I, I checked out and I listened to. I actually listened to it about three or four times because it was it was such a, to me, it was a sonic departure, but I couldn't quite put my finger on, on why because I couldn't point out anything that was that was really different in terms of being able to discern uh, how you mixed and mastered these sort of layers, but I think overall the sound I I I noted that it almost it almost has a sort of like post rock vibe, like a little bit of like a bit of a god a noisy god speed would probably be like the closest comparison. And that's exactly what I was going for. And at the same time, I had just bought that MIDI controller that I added to my rig, and I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna make an album with no guitar pedals and just use the MIDI controller and nothing else. It's, it's really time to MIDI fuck this track. Yeah. I wrote it all on my guitar, listening to, yeah, a lot of uh, Godspeed You Black Emperor's first two albums and most recent two albums, and a lot of the first three Explosions in the Sky albums and the most recent Mogwai album and that's probably why it came out so like droney post-rock and and what what made it sound to me again so hard to discern you know why um why it sounded so different but so in place was in the greater scheme the greater standard of your entire aesthetic you know i got that this very you know post-rock pretty like a noisy post-rock sort of vibe but all this sort of you know especially having this conversation all this sort of you know several uh, several wow sample heavy sort of uh production that you use predominantly alive but also in um recordings as well and the sort of media references to the samples that you're bringing to the table also, those never sound out of place in in something like a post record post post rock recording, you know, like the um, the entire not entire but the partial uh, the partial screenplay that's read by uh, Ephraim in uh, F sharp A sharp Infinity or the uh, the supermarket announcement in uh, Lift Your Skinny Fist. It all sort of 
fits together and you've just given it your own sort of noisy twist onto exactly what you were shooting for. Absolutely. And that kind of vibe was honestly a big inspiration for one of my other releases, Apostasia, that I did earlier this year in, I think, April, which was a, I think, 100-minute long track split up into nine parts. And it's very uh, synth and guitar oriented, but also has samples of a real exorcism being performed by a German Catholic priest in the 1970s. And so the song is 90 minutes of this priest trying to exorcise this 16-year-old girl while I'm just making the most bleak sounds I can with a bunch of guitar pedals and synthesizers and a guitar and a bass too. This one was pretty real instrument heavy for me. Well, I, re- I really can't wait to listen to that one. So to anybody else listening, that was Apostasia that Garmer was talking about. It's a 90 minute listen. So you're going to have to strap in, strap down and strap on to listen to that one. Um, so I think one of the other questions um, that I've sort of had that's, you know, bouncing around, especially with you, but just with with one and man acts in, in general, um, how does it for you, how does it differ as opposed to being um, in a in a band in a band with other members? Do you find it easier because you've given yourself sort of this um, this complete freedom to sort of do whatever you want or is there a little bit of sense of um worrying about a stalemate um in some sense because you don't really have uh the proverbial wall to bounce your ideas off of you're almost you know sort of stuck to your own and you worry you might not expand because for me I've dealt with kind of both ends of that spectrum but I'm just curious where uh where the one man project sort of sits uh, for you as opposed to uh, two or more people? Um, I don't know. It's kind of weird. There's good things about it and there's bad things about it. Uh, live performances kind of suck for more than one reason. Like, yeah, you don't have to share the glory if it's a good performance, but I don't really care about any of that but it really sucks if your performance sucks and you don't have anyone else to be like, man, we both really had a bad day today, you know? But in the studio, it's not so bad for the most part, except when I go to record stuff that's predominantly less noisy, like Baldur's Dramar. That's very much taken a back seat, because when I play guitar i'm mostly thinking about the other grind band that i play guitar for it's a little bit hard to separate the instrumentation when it's essentially muscle memory absolutely even even though i use the same guitar and play in the same tuning for the most part in both bands it's just when i start playing that style i stop thinking about this and start thinking about that because I mean, all of our stuff basically sounds like the stuff on Baldur's Dramar, but a little less noisy. So it's that it's that influence that you can almost never shake, and you've definitely, I would, like I said earlier, I definitely think that it, especially if it's a 
an influence you can't shake. You've be- definitely taken it with grace and sort of made it your own. So definite props on that. Well, thank you. I uh, really appreciate that because honestly, of all the guys in like my local noise scene, I which is surprisingly large for such a small area, I listen to like the least noise out of all of them. They're always showing me noise guys that I've never heard of that are super awesome. But for the most part, I just listen to like Mersbau, White House, The Body, and grind bands that have a lot of noise like Insect Warfare and Full of Hell or this really good not very well known Canadian band I found out about last year called Kuroi Jukai that is super noisy and oh dude those guys shred uh you've heard of them that's great their vocalist sounds so awesome his vocals are so just raw and gross. Oh, it's 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 amazing. Man, I hope nobody's playing a drinking game with how often I've been saying gross. Anyone who's listening, please report to me and everybody take a shot every time that Garmer said gross in this episode. And if you are still conscious enough to record yourself saying that you've done it, or if you would make a video of you doing it over the episode, I will, I will personally do something very cool for you. <laughs> but uh, no, and it sort of that uh, that whole idea, like you said, um, with people who listen to you know a lot of a lot of noise, and they'll they'll show you a lot of you know oh you gotta listen to this noise guy, and you know he's super cool, and then you know you gotta listen to this noise guy, and he's super cool. I almost want to skip the pun on this one but a little it, eventually at some point it becomes a little bit of white noise <laughs> but you know you're you're always hearing this and you're always sort of getting not the same thing but when it's so much noise and it's being pushed at such a high volume or whatever or anything like that it it gets a little bit easy to say well you know what i've i've got my staple artists and they sort of satisfy um, that need that I have for what I'm getting out of it. I feel like a lot of that happens too with uh, with jazz music, as much as it you know is tied in with noise, or as much as it can be uh, free jazz, anyways. But uh, that sort of thing where you know there's all these amazing jazz artists out there, and they were super influential. But you know some of the times you just the names sort of just start to fade together, and you almost just want to you just. I'll put on some Coltrane, and that's my jazz kick. <laughs> yeah, you know, though, it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, m- by and large, all the noise where I'm from has been pretty great from what I've heard, but there's one from not very far from where I live called Blue Movies, and I just played a show with them in Iowa a couple weeks ago the show that my last live album live at the hive collective was recorded at and they were phenomenal i've never seen them live before but one of them uh his name's bryant plays a saxophone into a huge pedal board into a giant ampeg amp and it sounds super super awesome and it's super jazzy and then uh his wife plays like a, I don't, 
it's like a CD player plus a turntable. So she's like doing scratch on a CD. So it's really sample heavy. It's really cool. That sounds incredible. Oh, they were awesome. They brought down the house at that show. See, and that's that's super cool. And I, me and me and Justin actually were talking about this uh, just yesterday. But we were we were talking about different sorts of things to use uh, in a noise project, and we both we both sort of you know really gave our hearts out to how much we love saxophones in uh, in noise music. Um, there's a there's a duo from up here in good old fashioned uh, Canadian Texas from up here in Alberta, and they're called the Freezing Waters Duo, and it's just uh, Devin with his uh, with his guitar through this decently large uh, pedal board, and then Mr. Waters just on his sax, and it's a hundred percent free improv and just. Just this, the way the sax whines and the way the sax just howls behind this really washy, like droned out reverb guitar. It just, it just hits such this this resonance in your heart that it's it's just beautiful. And I keep I keep listening to uh, one of the, it's not their latest release, but a couple a couple years ago when Wolf Eyes when they came out with I Am a Problem, Mind in Pieces. After they got Jim uh, uh, Baljo on guitar, and they've introduced like doubles, like one guy playing the double saxophone, like it just it's it's just so perfect. Oh yeah, that's great. That's like um, this album came out last year, uh, Sun Ra, and it's but it's like Sun the band and Sun Ra the jazz artist, and it's a mashup album. And it's not actually a Sun album. It's something that someone did with samples, but it's phenomenal. It's just like noise and doom and jazz. I heard something about that. I haven't got around to finding it yet. Oh my god, it's on YouTube in HD quality if you want to just listen to it without downloading it. And it's it's phenomenal. It was one of the best albums I heard last year. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to give that one a try. I also uh, just recently... I just recently found this on Bandcamp, too. It's uh, You can find it at mersbloodyvalentine.bandcamp.com and it's a mashup of Pulse Demon and Loveless. Oh, God. And it's also incredible. <laughs> oh my god that's perfect that's um oh it's totally unrelated to noise but now that just you brought up mash albums i i felt bad because it's it's decently old but i just found it not too long ago but it's a mashup album and it's called yoshimi battles the hip-hop robots and it's yoshimi battles the pink robots by the flaming lips with hip hop tracks all over it and it's the entire album and it's ridiculously good that sounds like it would be awesome actually i have not heard that yeah it's i think it's by the cleftones but yeah it's just it's just such a fun listen but so i've got two more things here cuz we're coming up on 
just under an hour here. So I've got a couple more things I wanted to uh, sort of pick at you about, and then we can probably begin to wrap this uh, this whole dealie up here, if that's all right with you. All right. Hit me with it. All right. So the first thing I wanted to ask that uh, I noticed also on the the Garmer page for any anyone who hasn't got there yet for whatever reason uh get the fuck on it that's g-a-r-m-r dot bandcamp dot com get on that shit and get there quick um but what i noticed as well is i actually have a another episode lined up with another artist that you've done a split with mr abu garib oh Abu Ghraib is awesome. Uh, that split was really fun to do, and we made really cool tapes that are spray-painted. Okay, you're definitely going to have to send me one of those. I will give you my mailing address. But I just I wanted to ask you know, how, how that sort of came about because he was sent my direction from James at Crank Play Things as well, so I was wondering if you had met through similar channels or if you had another story on how you uh, came about with Abu Garib? Um, actually, no. We're just all active in one of uh, the same online noise communities. That's actually how I also know James. We're both active a lot on Reddit's noise communities. I should pay a lot more attention to that because I'm on Reddit way more than I like to admit. <laughs> It's the best time waster, but it's got me hooked up with a bunch of cool noise artists. Uh, I'm working on releasing a digital compilation album with a bunch of cool artists, both a couple local artists and a lot that I met through Reddit that have some really good music. And uh, hopefully it'll be out in the next month or so. I'm waiting on uh, some artwork and a couple more tracks to be finished. But it sounds like it's going to be really cool, and the tracks that I've already got from most of the artists are amazing. All right, guys. Well, you heard it here first, maybe. I don't know if I have the exclusives on that one, but comp tape's coming at you from out of, out of all the states, out of all the glorious United States of Reddit. And so my my last question, I have to... This is so unrelated that it's just ridiculous, but I've been I've been watching all of these uh all of these like unsolved like mystery and like you know weird um like this person went missing and the trail went cold but there was this weird note and here's five cases like it or five cases with like a mysterious like missing person or something. So this is super, super unrelated. But there was an episode the other day that had... I forget what you guys have in the States. But there was some cryptic clue that was left at some murder scene or something. And it was like five or six numbers. And they said... You guys in the States have uh, zip codes. You guys have zip codes. Yeah. Okay, so... (laughs) Does zip codes apply to in, apply to entire like t- cities and towns? Like I it, it it was weird because it was only five numbers, but they were like, oh, that was the the zip code for this uh, this small town in Texas. And I thought that zip codes were very close in 
usage to what uh, postal codes are up here in Canada, but I don't think they are. Um, it's kind of complicated. I don't know. Zip codes. Zip codes are five numbers followed by a hyphen followed by four more numbers. And nobody writes the last four numbers on anything, and most people who don't work at a post office couldn't tell you what those four numbers do, myself included. But the other five numbers are the postal code for the city that you live in, or the city that your mail's being delivered to, or whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I I was... I was confused because it was only five numbers, and they said, yeah, that's, that's a zip code for this entire city, and I thought, well... That's odd because in Canada they go the postal codes they go by they go by three and three characters so it goes letter number letter number letter number and usually they'll start with the same first letter wherever you are but you know T5 T5Z is sort of where about I live in my city and then you can get to you know T4B in the same city. So I just thought I I just had a lot just questions about that. I thought you you states people are very strange people. Yeah, well honestly, you got me curious cuz I didn't know, so I just looked real quick and looked what the zip code the zip code plus 4 thing was. And the four digits after the the first five after the hyphen um those ones are like what part of the city they need to deliver to. So it's it's not like a specific thing, but if it's like 62550 and that's something in Texas and then it's like 1235, then it's like, oh, okay, that's like the northeast quadrant or something. Yeah, exactly. Or like this cluster of streets right up in the corner over here. Something like that, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, because I, I thought it was only the five numbers, and I was like, well, it's kind of pointless, because you might as well just write, like, Dallas or whatever. Like, that doesn't seem super necessary. Well, I would guess, like, uh, there's a town a couple miles from here that has a population of, like, 80, and I would guess that that town only has one code after its zip code, you know? Like, it's their zip code, the dash, and then the other four numbers, and then there's no other last four digit extension for that zip code okay that makes sense but then in bigger cities they probably have a bunch either that or they yeah they share the first five numbers with the nearest neighboring city and then the whole town is encompassed in the last four okay and then yeah so just keep it on this whole states thing because i i love talking to people from the states because you guys are so weird whenever i come across like American products here I I get scared a little bit I went to a candy shop the other day and I bought a can of Mountain Dew Black and I didn't know how to handle the fact that it only had English on the can well if it helps a lot of stuff here doesn't only have English on the packaging Mountain Dew is one of the exceptions to that though most sodas are English only for whatever reason for which sorry most sodas are English only for whatever reason, but like, I don't know, a lot of stuff will have Spanish or French on the packaging still. Oh, I well, I I guess that would still apply for you being in uh, being in Illinois because that's yeah, being in Illinois makes a little bit more sense because you you're right on the 
you're right on that sort of border, at least with the Great Lakes anyways. But, um, yeah, so, you, yeah, you guys aren't actually, like, on the Canadian border, but it's it's close enough in that sort of in that sort of area. But, yeah, you guys have – it would be more predominantly Spanish on your guys' products and packaging and stuff. But just just to see something with only English, it, it scared me. I, I didn't like it at – I didn't like it one bit. I could see that. That'd be like, I don't know, seeing something with no English on it, I guess. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I'm. It's it's weird because I've I've spent my whole life here in Canada, and I've got like I'm I'm French myself. So reading it in English and French doesn't doesn't really change for me. It doesn't really bother me. But just something that's always stuck in my head is like when I read packages to stuff like. It's it's weird to explain, but it's almost just one word to me. So it was like everything was missing half of its words, or like everything, like half of the word was missing on everything. But uh, sorry, so I I kind of took a bit of a tangent on that for you weird American people. But I actually had a question, uh, just more more to United States stuff because you guys have fifty freaking states, and I, I cannot be faulted for this. I legitimately did my best the other day. I sat down in my living room with a piece of paper and a pen and I tried to write out ev- all of the 50 states and I got to 43 before I had to stop and I couldn't remember the last seven. So I still got like 86% of your guys' states. Since this is audio only, you can't see me, but I'm dying over here because you did better than most Americans would have. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, cause yeah, and it, I want to say I'd get close to 50, but I'm not totally sure about that myself. <laughs> I got, I got 43 and I was very, very proud, but I, I, I wanted to ask because you guys do have so many freaking States and obviously as you guys get like further East, they sort of, they get a lot closer together. I know like in, uh, the Southwest, they start to spread out a bit more and just more to the Midwest even too. But how much, like, how much of a thing is it to like go into another state? Cause you said that you were, you, you said that you were over in the next state or you, you did a show in Iowa and that's, you know, the next state over, but how, like how far would, like, how far is that to Iowa? Like, how long does that take? Because, like for us up here in Canada, like you can, for us, like where I am in Alberta, like you can drive three and a half hours. You could drive three and a half hours north and then get halfway through the province. Well, I'm in like the worst place to ask that because going to Iowa takes like four minutes from my house because I live right on the border. But, like, to get to Indiana would take me hours and hours, like, four-ish hours, probably. Yeah, it's 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 just, it's different to me, because it doesn't, it never seems to be, like, a huge thing to travel between states, right? But up here, to, like, go to the next province, like, like I live, okay, so I live in, like, south-central Alberta-ish, because I'm, I'm in Edmonton, and... My sister lives uh, a little bit further east over in British Columbia, so she's west of me, but she's in the more she's a bit more east in her province. 
and she's just outside of Kamloops, and that takes like eight and a half hours to get to, and you've traveled like a province, like one province. Okay, well, we probably have a couple states that big. Like, I've never done a drive across Texas. Anytime I went to Texas, I flew. But I'm sure that driving across Texas takes like eight to ten hours. And I know that driving across Alaska would take forever because Alaska is like half the half the size of the continental United States. Yeah, it's it takes up like a, I think it was like 47, 47 to forty seven, forty seven to forty eight percent. It would if it was placed in there. This 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 is just dumb conversation but it's just me wanting to know things about the states because it's it's right next door but it's it's so foreign to me and i find a lot of things about america just so interesting yeah i mean realistically most of the states are small enough that you can cover a lot of ground in a single day of driving like it only takes about 24 hours to get from the middle of the country to either coast. I guess that makes that makes sense. Like to me, that makes sense, and to me, it doesn't seem like it would be that way. Because it's like, oh, you have to cross like, you know, how many states? But then you just—it's the same as me crossing like two provinces. Like I, it's just borders. Yeah, they're just like really tiny provinces for the most part. Which. Which leads me to another question because uh, it's kind of weird to explain because it's all just sort of like colloquialisms and just local things. But like how how distinct would you say that like states are culture wise? Because like I said, like I mentioned earlier, like I'm from Alberta and even James, a guy from New Zealand was aware that Alberta is, like, the Texas of Canada. Like, it's just trucks and cowboys and oil, like, all over the place. But when you, you know, you go to the next province over and you're in B.C. and all of a sudden you're in fucking marijuana and free love and art country and then you go to Saskatchewan, which is just Saskatchewan. It doesn't count. It's just flat and nothingness. And then, you know, Quebec is just, like, French people yelling at each other. And then Ontario is just a bunch of people that hate us, but we also hate them. But they all live over here for some reason. And everyone just collectively hates Ontario and thinks it's way too large. And then all the maritime provinces, everyone sounds ridiculous from them. And they all like way too much seafood and blah, blah, blah. Like, all the provinces have, like, very oddly distinct cultures. And I wondered if that was the same... uh, below the 100th meridian to you guys between states kind of it's a little more regional but even within regions states have their differences like for example everybody in illinois hates anybody from iowa who's driving a car for any reason (laughs) like we get along about pretty much everything else but we hate them if they're driving a car seriously Anyone from Iowa listening to this, what the fuck, man? What the fuck? That's hilarious because we have, like, a completely similar thing here in Alberta. And it's weird because you you border with Iowa, so it would make sense that they're there. But 
you know, we have, you know, you'll come across maybe a couple Saskatchewan plates in a day. I don't remember the last time I ever saw a Manitoba plate, like, in the last couple of years. But the second anyone from Alberta sees an Ontario driver on our roads, we will flip the fuck out. So, yeah, Ontario listeners, too, get your fucking plates back to Thunder Bay. <laughs> well, and the worst part is, like, I live in a house of six people. And all six of us work in Iowa, even though we live in Illinois. So we have to go over there and drive on their turf and be outnumbered. Oh, no. It's like the noisy version of the Warriors. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. And, like, all of our streets are arranged in a grid and they're numbered so they're easy to navigate. So if you've never been to the town, you can still find stuff because you're like, oh, it's addresses. 1234, so it's on 12th Street or 12th Avenue, depending on what street it tells you it's on. Alright, I didn't realize that, well, um, if all of Illinois is like that, that is super sick, because all of Edmonton, all of my city, is exactly like that. Everything is, for the most part, in a grid. We have some weird bend points, but everything is like, oh, okay, it's on... It's on 78th Ave. It's like, cool, so it's south of the river. Oh, it's on 115th Ave. Okay, it's north of the river. Like, it's all it's all grid, and it's all numbered, and it's beautiful. And then you go down to Calgary, which, any listeners from Calgary, I love your city, but it's impossible to navigate because everything has a fucking name. And it's like, oh, yeah, just go to fucking Bath of Mosque Avenue. It's like, cool, I'll just get right there. I know what that is. It's awful. Yeah, and that's exactly how everything in Iowa is. Their streets are all named after, like, trees and plants and shit, and none of their stuff is on a grid. How the fuck am I supposed to navigate over there without Google Maps? Nothing's numbered. Yeah, you either have to drive around like an asshole with your Google Maps open on your phone, or you have to go back to 1991, print off the MapQuest directions, and drive around with, like, six pages of words. At least I have a thing to mount my phone on my dashboard so I don't have to hold it while I'm driving. I just have to plug it into my stereo and listen to the directions. But it's still Iowa's fault that you have to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to side with you. I'm going to take this official stance right now. I'm on Illinois' side of this. Iowa, give your fucking head a shake, bud. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, ta- I'm taking your side on this one, Garmer. Uh, TJ Sock like officially sides with Garmer in Illinois for the way your street should be fucking arranged. Remember that shit. It's seriously, it's awful. Alright, but I think that we've pretty much covered everything from uh, the way that your gear rig is set up to building synths to why roads are so terrible and why French labeling is the best thing on the planet and should never be changed. So, with that, I would like to thank Luke himself. I would like to thank Garmer for joining me on this installment of Visionary Objet Da. So, big thank you to him. And you can check out all of his solo stuff, again, at garmr.bandcamp.com. And you can look out for some more releases from him and his multiple sides projects coming at you. Always, always recording. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. 
It's been a pleasure talking to you, Garber, and I wish you all the best in the endeavors ahead and keep it fucking noisy and fuck Iowa. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me on. I've really had an awesome time tonight. I did a lot. Thank you for making this uh this first installment that wasn't with James a lot uh a lot less nerve wracking. That's that's perfect, buddy. <laughs>